encourage you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11, the passage that Stan read for us today. One of the advantages of the times in which we live is that, that we have amazing information that comes out all the time on how we can uh, maintain our, our physical health or about how we can improve our health. And specifically, we have lots of information on how we can eat in healthy ways. This probably all came about because we have, in the day and age in which we live, so many unhealthy options. There are so many things that taste good, but have been made to taste good, generally in unhealthy, unnatural ways. And so information on healthy eating can be very helpful, if that is, we decide to abide by it. Sadly, most of us just ignore it, until, that is, some of us are forced to make some, quote, lifestyle changes. Now, here in Canada, we have something called the Canada Food Guide that gives us some directives on how much of different kinds of food groups we should eat every day. How many grains, how many cereals, how many uh, dairy products, or, or how much protein, how many servings of fruit and vegetables, all those sorts of things. Now, most of us, at least somewhat, and especially during our regular meals, will at least give some thought to including some of these food groups, or at least the one that, that cooks in the home will give a little bit of thought to that. During supper, uh, standard fare is usually meat, but we'll also try to include some kind of vegetable even if sometimes that is French fries, right? But at our house, you'll often hear something from, especially from one end of the table, like, make sure you have something green on your plate, or something colorful, something that isn't just meat and potatoes. At mealtime, most of us will know that we should eat something healthy. But that's mealtime. Where all of that sort of goes out the window is when we want a snack. When we wander into the kitchen for a snack, either before bed or, or in between meals, we're generally not really thinking too much about the Canada Food Guide or about health. We're just hungry and we want something tasty to munch on. And so we'll grab some chips or some nuts, something salty, or it'll be something on the other hand, something sweet, maybe some chocolate or, or some candy. And in our good moments, we might even grab an apple or some other kind of fruit. But I'm probably pretty safe in assuming that most of you will not go to the fridge and grab a couple of leaves of spinach lettuce. Or that you'll just grab an eggplant and chomp into it. That's not the first thing that you get out of the fridge when you're hungry for a snack. You want something tasty. You don't want something tasteless or worse. Something revolting. Well, as we get back to the Gospel of Mark today, we find there an interesting thing. Our Lord is hungry, and he's looking there for something to eat. Only as we know now with Jesus, as we've kind of been walking through the Gospel of Mark, that he always uses occasions like this, and this time it's the occasion of hunger, to teach something important. 
Here he's going to use his hunger as an object lesson on the kind of thing that he's really hungry for. For the kind of thing he really desires from his people. Jesus is hungry and he's looking for something. We're going to find out through this sort of analogy or a parable that Jesus wouldn't find what he was looking for here in this story. And so he, as only Jesus or only God can do, he pronounces a curse on it. And so this story sort of serves as a heads up, as a, as a warning for everyone about what Jesus wants and what Jesus does not want from the people of God. Since we've been away from, uh, from Mark for a while now, as we did a series on Advent and then some other things, let me just reorient ourselves to where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. This particular story comes the day after Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, what we call the triumphal entry and, and uh, the event that we usually celebrate on Palm Sunday. And so this is the last week of Jesus' earthly life. This is Monday. And if you know anything about the Passion Week, Jesus would be crucified later on that week on Friday. And everything in Mark 11 to 16 covers just that one week. This is when everything starts coming together. Emotions are just starting to, to bubble. Jesus has now made it into Jerusalem, which is the scene of the crucifixion. And the religious leaders are getting more and more uncomfortable with who Jesus is and with the strange things, at least to their minds, that he does. And they're starting to see, particularly, that Jesus has his sights set squarely on them. And so things are getting really tense. And so that's where we're at as we come to Mark 11, verse 12. In the verse just before that, Mark 11, 11, it says that Jesus came into Jerusalem and went into the temple where he takes a quick look around and then he goes back a couple of miles probably to, to Bethany where he's staying for the week. He always goes back to Bethany and then comes back usually to the temple during the days. And he's probably maybe even staying at the home there of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But he goes to the temple and looks around. Now that's very important because the temple is where everything is going to happen. Jesus on this night before knows that he's going to have to go there the next day and stir things up. The temple was no longer functioning the way it was designed by God to function. And Jesus is just kind of getting the lay of the land here that night before and, and may have even spent the night after that or during that night praying about how to handle this abuse of the temple. And so, we have this kind of a strange story here about a fig tree. And, and when this story comes, we have a, a clue that this was going to have something to do with the temple. And then in the middle of our section there, in verses 12 to 25, we have an account of Jesus going in and turning over tables and saying that the temple has been turned into a den of robbers. But on both sides of that that story, that incident where Jesus goes into this temple, you've got this thing where Jesus talks to a fig tree. Kind of weird. And he actually gets mad at the tree because he didn't find any figs. When Mark writes like this, it's, we, we typically call it a, a sandwich, a, a Markan sandwich. So here we have uh, 
a fig sandwich. <laughs> the two outside parts, the story about the fig tree, explain the inside part where Jesus goes into the temple courts and turns over the tables. And so when you see this strange story about Jesus cursing a, trip, a fig tree, think about the fact that it must relate to what he's doing in the temple. And in this story, Jesus is predicting what's going to happen to the temple and by extension to the whole Jewish religious system. The temple was the heart of Jewish religion. Their whole system centered on the temple. The temple was supposed to represent for them the presence of God. It's where the Hebrew people could meet with God by offering sacrifices. That's how they would get to God, how they had access to Him. And so this was the place of worship. When someone thought of the Jews and of Israel and of Jerusalem, they would think of the temple. It was the heart, the center of their religion. And so Jesus right here is going right for the heart. He's been attacking the system the whole time in different ways. But now he's going for it. This is now a, a frontal attack on their religion. And he uses this image of the fig tree to start the confrontation. A fig tree, if you know the Old Testament a little bit, becomes an image of Israel right through the Old Covenant. Even Israel, the land of Israel, is full of fig trees. In fact, when the 12 spies went into the land of Canaan, and remember that story? We sing it in Sunday school, you know, 10 were bad and 2 were good, that song. When they go in there, what they come back with is a, is a branch of, of fig trees. It was full of fig trees. It was one of the things they brought back to prove it was a fruitful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. These figs were tasty and good, and so figs became a symbol of Israel. But by the time of the prophets, fig trees also became a symbol of judgment on Israel. And so you have a verse, just for instance, like Jeremiah 29, verse 17, where it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Wherever you see the Lord of hosts, that's a picture of God as a warrior. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. And that's kind, the kind of picture that Jesus is getting at here too. He's traveling back into Jerusalem from Bethany, and it says, verse 12, he was hungry. And he sees a fig tree in leaf. And here's the point. From, from far away, this fig tree looked like it was fruitful. It would look to everyone like it was a fruitful tree. It had leaves on it, lush. And so the outward appearance made it look like there was something of substance inside. But when he got to the tree, it says, he found nothing but leaves. That right there is a summary of what Jesus thought about the temple. But not only the temple, about what Jewish religion had become. From far away, everything looked good, but when you get a little closer, it was nothing but leaves. On that tree, all he found was foliage, when what he really wanted was fruit. And what he wants from religion is fruit. He doesn't want something that just looks good on the outside. He wants a kind of religion, a kind of spirituality, where what's on the inside bears the fruit of righteousness, not an appearance of righteousness. 
But that's not what he finds there in the temple and in the whole Jewish religion. If the temple is bad, the whole thing is rotten. And so as we make our way through these events, we need to ask ourselves, what kind of things Jesus is hungry for? What kinds of people? What kinds of attitude? What kind of heart? What kinds of fruit? Now when we say hungry, we're, we're talking about a desire. It's not that Jesus, you know, it's not that Jesus lacks anything from a divine perspective. But as God, he is jealous for his name, for his reputation. He will not be mocked. He will not be given a, a half-hearted worship. So what is God after here? What kind of fruit is Jesus hungry for? Well, I think we can put these into two categories here, each described by two words, and you have them there on your outlines. The first are worship and weightiness, and the second, just very quickly at the end, there are faith and forgiveness. The first ones are what I want to spend the most time on. They are the, the main kinds of fruit that God is after. And the second sort of flow out of the first. So number one, God is hungry for worship and weightiness. I'll explain that a little bit more. The fact that Jesus attacks the temple is a, is a clue that something had gone wrong with what had become the worship of that day. Their worship was corrupt, it was rotten. So when Jesus curses the fig tree and then comes into the temple and drives out the, the buyers and the sellers and the money changers, he is, through an analogy and through his actions, pronouncing a curse of what had become of their worship. The temple was the center of Jewish life, as I said. And you, you remember that the first temple was built by King Solomon, a beautiful temple around 1000 BC. It was an amazing structure and was dedicated to the Lord as a, as a place that symbolized his presence, a place where one could meet with the Lord, a, a place where one could worship the Lord. But their worship eventually became corrupt as they, as they started to worship all sorts of other gods. And, and, and so God actually raises up a, a foreign people, a, the Babylonians, to sack the temple as a judgment against God's chosen people. And so the, the temple is gone and the, and the people are scattered. But a little later, during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple is again rebuilt and worship starts to happen again. This second temple, as it's called, is nowhere as beautiful as it was in Solomon's day, but Israel has a place again where they can worship God. But by about carrying on now and there's all sorts of stuff that happens in the 500 years kind of in between the Old Testament and the New Testament with the temple it gets desecrated and then it gets um, sort of magnified again and then brought to its right place but by 20 BC King Herod has started to totally renovate and upgrade this second temple to bring it back to its former glory and it really has become by the time of Jesus the high point of Jerusalem and the center of activity could see the temple from everywhere. And so this is what it's like by the, time of, by the time that Jesus arrives. Now physically, the temple was in the middle, of, kind of right in the middle, the Holy of Holies, and, and the grounds kind of descended outward and downward, down a hill. At the top was this Holy of Holies where only the priest would go into one, one time a year to offer his sacrifice of atonement for himself and for all the people. 
outside of that, kind of descending outwards there, is where only the priests could go. And then there was another area where the Jews were allowed in, but they couldn't go into the area of the priests. And then there was another area outside of that, where, which was as far as the Jewish women could get into the center. It was called the Court of the Women. And then down the hill, now there's actually physical steps going down, uh, there was an, uh, outside of that a huge area. And this was probably about 35 acres large, which was called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was called that because this was as close to the temple as non-Jews were allowed to go. But this is where Jesus is when he starts driving people out and overturning tables and seats. This area had basically become a marketplace. It was packed with people coming for the Passover. This is right around that time. And some estimates, some historians say there could have been up to 100,000 people in there, in that 35 acres. And the religious leaders used this place to, to make a little bit of extra cash. Everyone that made sacrifices during the Passover had to play, pay a, a half-shekel temple tax. But they could only pay in the temple currency. There was a separate cur- currency just for, just for what you could use in the temple. And so they had to exchange money. And for this service, they would make a little bit of a profit. Probably not any different than if you were to exchange money in an airport or something like that. But here, again, some historians say that there could have been up to about a 25% markup. And then it talks there about pigeons or doves, which back in the Old Testament law said could be uh, used by poor people for sacrifice if they weren't rich enough to have a, a bull or a lamb or a goat. And those would also be sold here in the temple, again, for a huge profit. And it was sort of convenient for the pilgrims in that they didn't have to haul their sacrifice along from wherever they were coming from, but it was also a moneymaker for the temple trade. But in comes Jesus and overturns these tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he wouldn't, in addition to this, he wouldn't even let anyone use the temple grounds for a shortcut. Now the temple was right in the middle of Jerusalem and people would kind of, if they wanted to get from one end of Jerusalem to the other end, they'd just take a shortcut through the temple. Well, Jesus stops all of that as well. So what is the problem here? Well, he tells us down in verse 17. It says, He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The temple had become a stock market, a marketplace, a a place of extortion, a den of robbers, when it was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Interesting that he calls it my house. Jesus is claiming that this is his house. This is owned by him. It's his. It's, it's God's house. And they've turned his house into a den of robbers. The problem is in the fact that they have taken a place that was intended by God to be a place of worship, a place of prayer, a place of meditation, and turned it into a place of commerce and extortion. There's a verse in Psalm 27, verse 4, that says, One thing I have, this is David speaking, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
And what does he say that you should do? Why does he want to go there? Continues on, says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. And so Jesus comes in there. He's just saying, you're not able to do what it's been intended to do with all this other stuff going on, with all that noise and activity. How could someone, how could anyone gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to meditate? They had trivialized a sacred place. They had totally distorted this place of worship, had distracted any worshipers from actually worshiping. And listen, if there's anything that will arouse God's anger, God's wrath, it will be when people are prevented from worshiping Him. You see, God is jealous for His name. He is God. He is hungry for worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. And when that's prevented from happening, judgment and curse and divine wrath is sure to follow. And so this temple was designed by God. Even though it was a temporary provision, it was designed to be a house of prayer, a place of worship. And did you notice? A place of prayer for whom? For all the nations. It was supposed to be a place where the Gentiles could go to meet God, to to pray, to meditate, to worship. Now, that statement, those last few words, would have been a total in-your-face to messianic expectation. We can't quite catch the gravity of that right now, but, but, but the Jews thought the Messiah would come and get rid of all the Gentiles from the temple. That was their expectation. But here is Jesus saying, my house is a house of prayer for all the nations. You know, this is one of those, you go Jesus kind of moments. Instead of clearing the temple of Gentiles, he clears the temple for the Gentiles. That's why the very next verse says, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and what was their reaction? They were seeking a way to destroy him. Here was Jesus challenging not only the Jews, but their whole sacrificial system. They couldn't get to God except through sacrifice. But now Jesus is saying that even the unclean Gentiles can go directly to God. How? In prayer. Like I said, we, it's hard for us to kind of grasp the gravity, gravity of that in our day and age. But that statement was earth-shattering for those that were there. Jesus not only literally overturned their tables, he was at the same time overturning their entire system. And so it says there in verse 18 that they, were, they heard this and they wanted to kill him. Their system had become corrupt. Their fruit had become rotten. And it had become worshipless. And God had become weightless. Oh, they honored God with their lips. But the reality of their worship was laid bare right there in the temple courts. There was busyness and noise, but no spirituality and reverence. There was activity and opulence, but no prayer, no humility. There was an appearance of fruit, but it was fruitless. There were leaves, but nothing to chew on. There was foliage, but no fruit. It was a dead spirituality, and God cursed it right down to its roots. And then 
it all begs a question from us today. What does God think about us? Have we lost the sense of the worship of God and the weightiness of God? And by weightiness, I'm talking about how we think about God. Has God become light in our thoughts, or is He big and mighty? The Hebrew word glory literally means heaviness. Do we regard God as, as heavy, or is He just sort of someone that is assumed? but has lost his sense of glory and awe and reverence and weightiness? Has he become light in our thoughts and in our actions and in our affections? Or let's bring it from an individual level to when we gather as a church. Just extending that temple metaphor, each of us is now a temple of God, like I told the children, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that place where God resides through His Spirit. And so the temple is, is no longer this place, it's no longer a structure. We are each the temple of God. And so as a church, as we gather together as a church, we collectively reflect God's presence. So is there a sense of weightiness in our church when we think about God? Or is it all about looks. This is a real warning for us. And the lesson is to worship God rightly and to not let God become weightless to us. That's what the entire culture is doing to God. He's becoming weightless and light. How is our worship? Is it just for show? Are we more worried about performance than we are about prayer? I appreciate more than anyone, the talent, as much as anyone at least, the talent that we have in this church. Our people who are into the arts, for instance, into music and drama and audiovisual and decorating and tradespersons and craftsmen, have tremendous ability and are using their time to serve the church. But when we, as people, sit here and, and listen to them, or, or when they perform, or when I preach here's a good evaluation question are we impressed with the talent or are we impressed with the God of whom they sing and of whom they speak we need to be real careful in this especially since we are blessed with the facility and, and with the ability that we have in our church we need to be really careful lest we incur God's wrath when we gather, we need to come prepared to, to hear from the Almighty God, that, that voice of God that, that Matt sang about, and to meet with the Almighty God and to, to seek the Almighty God in prayer. Is prayer even a priority in our church? Another good question to evaluate our worship and God's weightiness is to ask ourselves whether, whether all the nations would be able to come to our church and perceive that this is a house of prayer. If this is a house of prayer for all the nations, for all peoples, would unbelievers, listen, would unbelievers be able to come into this place and say, the Lord is in this place? Or does what we do hinder them from meeting with God? Brothers and sisters, let us be sure we are in the right place in our hearts when we worship. We do not want to be showy. Rather, we want to show off God in our worship. We want to make Him weighty. 
And then we want to be open to the Gentiles of our world. Are we the kind of people who make outsiders feel welcome? Now let me just say that if you are here today and are not a Christian, we are glad you are here. Our hope is that you would feel welcome. While at the same time praying that you being here today and hearing God's word, you might consider becoming a worshiper of God. You may have been trusting in other things. We encourage you to have faith in God. And to my fellow Christians, let's make sure that we give God the reverence that He is due and be careful not, never, to make light of Him. Kevin DeYoung summarizes it well when he says that bad religion is shallow, prayerless, and ingrown. End quote. Shallow, prayerless, and ingrown is bad religion. So let us strive in in this worshiping community to be reverent, to be worshipful, and to be welcoming. Well, what is the kind of fruit for which God hungers? He wants worship and weightiness. He also desires faith and forgiveness. And you can see that there in verses 20 to 25. And I'm not going to go into this in length. This is kind of the end here. The next day they pass by the same spot again and they see the fig tree that Jesus cursed and it's withered right down to its roots. All of this is, is, is pointing ahead to what's eventually going to happen to the temple and the whole temple system. God curses it and it's going to be dissolved right down to its roots. There's going to be nothing left. This is now Tuesday. By Friday, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies will be torn in two. Remember that after Jesus died on the cross? That's exactly what happened. And Jesus himself will replace the temple. He is the presence of God. And and he alone gives us access to God. We come through him. So Jesus becomes the true Israel. Jesus is the true temple. And so Jesus says in in verse 22, have faith in God. He's saying, don't worry about the temple being gone. Put your faith in God. Trust in God. Don't trust in any kinds of traditions. Believe in Him. Believe in His Word. Believe in His promises. This is what we do when we pray. We believe that God can do great and mighty things. We rely on God. We trust in God to accomplish what He says. We believe in His His promises. And if we believe in God's promises and we believe in God's word, we'll we'll be quick to forgive. That follows naturally. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who who also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If we aren't willing to forgive, it betrays our, our own hearts and our own self-righteous attitude. And that makes us no better than the religious leaders here who are focused on a phony kind of righteousness where they would come to trust in their own accomplishments more than what God has done. And so God hungers for a heart like his own, one that is slow to anger, one that is quick to forgive. This is the, this is the kind of fruit God wants from his followers, faith and forgiveness, worship and weightiness. And it all comes back to Jesus. Jesus, as we've seen always demands some kind of response from us, from those that would follow him. You've got to either accept him or reject him. Again, there's no middle ground. 
Here, he's making himself the center. He's rejecting and cursing the temple and putting himself in its place. What do the religious leaders do? They reject him. They sought to destroy him. And so the question for all of us is, what will you do with Jesus? Don't just, don't just put on a show on the outside. Don't just appear moral, yet show no fruit. Don't just try to put him off on the side somewhere where you can just find him when you need him. He won't stand for that. He wants to be the center. You have to trust him alone for life. If you put anything above him or try to put anything in addition to him, get rid of it. Get rid of it before God comes and overturns, overturns the tables of your bad religion. If you are feeling distant from God, if other things have gotten in the way, I encourage you to, again, see Christ in the center of your life. Worship God alone. Have faith in Christ alone. Forgive others as God has forgiven you. Let's pray.